and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts. So today, I'm talking about an herb that I use for a week every month, hint, hint, red raspberry leaf. So these are the leaves of raspberry plants, and I'll talk a little bit about the fruits, but really the leaf is like where it's at in the herbal actions. And then on a like very different note, other end of the spectrum, covering Adonis. Very interesting, very interesting. So, um, you know, a bit of masculine, a bit of feminine, and a bit of everything in between. Um, so we're continuing this week our second trip around the wheel of the year. I'm talking about Lunasa or Lamas or another funny name, which we'll talk about in the segment. And I was giggling. I don't know why. I'm so immature. I giggle at everything. I mean, I think that uh, it's not immaturity. It's continuing to have a sense of humor about life when the world is on fire. Which, yes, we, we do love that. But before we get into all of these serious conversations, when did you feel the magic this week? Man, <clears throat> this week, I think for me, it's really been about my garden, right? Like I planted my pumpkins not too long ago and all of my little pumpkin sprouts for gourd season are coming up. I've just been spending a lot of time with my plants outside. Like work has been really stressful and dealing with some family stuff. And so I've really just been like leaning in to my plants and y'all, they're so good. They're so good. Like my cucumbers are looking dope. I had a huge handful of cherry tomatoes that I like fresh harvested yesterday morning. And then I made this great like brown butter cherry tomato, like sort of sauce to go on this sun-dried tomato goat cheese um, ravioli that I got at Trader Joe's. So I got like the pre-made ravioli and then made this like super dope sauce with like it was I browned the butter and then cooked the half cherry tomatoes in it and then I did a chiffonade of some purple basil that I got from my garden Mm. and of course like some fresh garlic in there so it was like this really great like oh it was just so summery and so good and I felt so excited about like pulling so much of it from my own garden and for me that's really where the magic's been this week it's been like eating stuff that I grew because that is always so dope and I do love that and I love that it's like tomato basil season like it's very much like yeah make you some sauce honey yeah and can we talk about how beautiful purple basil is because like if y'all have never grown purple basil when you grow it fresh it's not like entirely purple like some of the leaves are pure purple but some of them are like this beautiful dark purple with splotches of green on them too like purple basil is gorge definitely recommend growing it and okay just on that note though like this is a side note but we've been doing some new desserts at work and um one of the ones that was like part of an experiment featured a blackberry basil coulis oh yes i love blackberries and what i will say is If you have a lot of basil and you were like, what am I going to do with all this fucking basil? Don't forget to, don't sleep on the idea that basil could be in a dessert because it actually, I mean, like mint almost, like it just adds a nice 
herbaceous flavor that actually tastes so good with fruit. So yeah, it's really uplifting. I mean, like basil and blackberry. I am also a huge fan of basil and watermelon together. Like that's oh, one yeah. of my favorite combos. Like like a water like a watermelon caprese. Have you done that? Yes. Have you had a, have... Yes. Oh my god. I love watermelon. Um and the purple basil, I know I'm just like super excited about my purple basil, but purple basil and desserts is also beautiful. Like mm, mm-hmm. Anyway, Nick, what about you? Okay, what did you okay, feel the magic? Okay. Okay, I, um and you know I'm not one to self-report like any kind of paranormal activities, okay? That's true. That's very true. So, okay, this is an interesting one. So this actually happened the night before last. And I was saving talking to you about it because it was the night that I had the space bar dream that I was telling you about. And I wake up and um, so all of my, both of my current cats, okay, are very much like top half sleepers so like you know Oliver's kind of like in the crook of my arm and then Faye is actually usually on the pillow next to my head or like on the next pillow but like very much there so both of my cats are are where they're supposed to be but I swear to you I wake up in the night and feel a third cat behind the crook of my knee and do you know do you know who slept in the crook of my knee? Ivan? Because no, 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 I'm no, no, here. No. It made me think Ivan. Ivan slept there on me. Cousteau. And it was actually so weird because I had had this, re- this really weird moment. I don't know why um, when I'm tired, I lose all sense of time. But like someone was talking to me about having a white and orange cat. And I was like, oh, I have a white and orange cat. I was like, oh, um but then no it was but that that happened recently but then I like woke up and like I literally felt like a fucking cat behind my knees and I'm like wait a minute is Will I'm thinking my roommate's cat is is in there so I turn on the light and there's nothing there so yeah I'm like that would have been maybe freakier than a ghost cat yeah if she had like crept into your room and was sleeping with you because that is not her vibe (laughs) <laughs> well, and she would have had to have literally walked through a wall to do so. Yeah, so. That, I mean, you know, yeah. I um, it just made me think of Ivan. So maybe it was Cousteau, but maybe Ivan came. I'm maybe also going to put came. that out there. Maybe Ivan came to but, visit. But either for way, sure there was ghost cat. But for sh- but for sure there was a ghost cat, uh, or some equally sized warm animal. I used visiting to me, feel vis- visiting me in the night. I used to feel Ivan like getting on the bed after he died, like, and anyone who, I guess there's no reason anyone, but you would know this. So in our house now in Park La Brea, the cats aren't allowed in the bedroom. Willow sleeps in the bed at night, but the cats aren't allowed in. And that sounds mean until I like tell you guys the reason they're not allowed in is because those motherfuckers, Ivan and Samson used to like get into the box spring at night and play around and like run around and fucking scare the shit out of me and wake me up because y'all it's scary to have like a creature running through your box spring in the middle of the night while you're sleeping. So they got exiled 
And that has just stayed the case even once Ivan passed and we got Hexus because like Hexus and Willow, they have a love-hate relationship. And like Willow has just been like the bedroom animal for a long time. So anyway, but after Ivan died like a little over a year ago, I would feel him walking around on the bed at night because Ivan used to sleep either behind my knee or on my feet. Those were like his two spots and I would like feel him walking around. So I'm like our furry friends, Hundo P I think come to stay with us sometimes. Um, but anyway, let's talk about I thought, raspberry. I, oh, go I ahead. thought it was nice. I thought it was nice. I, 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 I was that. like definitely not like, oh, it's a, it's a ghost. I was like very much like, oh, okay. Fine. Well, it, if anyone's into like spooky TV, can I just say Conjuring Kesha has been such a guilty pleasure of mine the first few episodes because I famously love Kesha. Anyone who didn't know that now knows. I had a Kesha themed birthday party when I turned 20. We which covered was everything a great in Glitter. birthday party, which was a truly great birthday party. It was so much fun. So I love Kesha, but she has this new show um, because we have the Discovery Channel app because it's like paranormal cooking, true crime are all included there, which is like everything that I love. Oh, and home design. I'm like the Discovery yeah. app. This is not an ad for the Discovery app. They don't need my support, but it's $5 a month, y'all. And like, I feel like witches would be into it. But Conjuring Kesha, it is like her paranormal show doing like ghost hunting stuff. And oh my God, it is a delight. That that sounds incredina it is incredina it is like a hundred percent on brand for me to be obsessed with this and i just like uh anyway but let's talk about raspberries y'all so like again i know that the fruit is delicious or whatever you can put them on the tips of your fingers because they're hollow inside very cute but when I'm talking about like the herbalism and magical stuff, I'm mostly going to be focusing on the leaf today, but I am going to talk to you about growing them. So you can use the leaves from wild raspberries or cultivated ones, but keep in mind, if you're foraging, there's a lot of safety advice that we've given the black forager on Instagram and TikTok, check her out. She's everything. But I think it's really interesting to note that raspberry is in the rosaceae family. It's in the Rose family, y'all. Isn't that fun? I don't know no, why. It just, that delighted me. I, th I, th I think that's really cute for them. I know. I love them. Like, um, for, so the like for some reason, that's like really cute for them. I know. I'm here for it. I'm happy for Raspberry to be with like the beautiful love plant. And they have so much of a Noosian energy anyway. But they're, uh, the Latin name is Rubus Adeus. And according to Dioscorides, raspberries grew abundantly on Mount Ida, which is where the Latin Ideas comes from. And in Greek mythology, there was a nymph named Ida who was Zeus's nurse and raspberries were all white at that time. But then one day while she was gathering the raspberries for baby Zeus, she pricked her finger and her blood turned the fruits red. And that's why raspberries are now red, which here we go, Zeus, just already like fucking things up even as an infant. Um, but 
Rubus idaeus is native to the temperate parts of Europe and Asia, but there's also a black raspberry that's native to central and eastern US, and then another species of black raspberry that you can find in the western parts of North America, like from Alaska, all the way down to Mexico. The raspberries were being cultivated and distributed around Europe by the Romans, and then of course, like so many things, the English brought it over to North America in the 1700s. Those were some of my ancestors, sorry folks, but hey, raspberries are dope. So really like raspberries have been a fan fave for quite a long time. And Rubus adeus grows between like a half to three meters tall. Like these can get like human height. Like they get very tall and they grow mostly in thickets. And in the most, most versions of them, the first year canes only produce a few leaves. But in the second year, they produce like lateral branches that grow leaves and flowers. The stems are smooth, round, and woody with curved prickles. Remember, even roses don't technically have thorns. They're prickles. You can be a dickhead at a cocktail party now. And the leaves are really pretty. They're like green on top with silvery gray, white, like undersides. The leaves are pinnately compound. They have like three to five leaflets. And then each oval shaped leaflet has a rounded base and comes to like a point. It's like almost oval shaped. And the flowers that come up in the spring, they're five petaled flowers that are white. Like we love a five petaled flower moment. Hello, witches everywhere rejoice. And the berry quote unquote is actually a collection of droplets around a cone shaped core. And when you pick the fruit, the core is left behind on the plant, which is why the berries are hollow in the center. Cause I'm like, everyone's put raspberries on the tip of tips of their fingers, right? Like that's a thing that everyone's done. Well, it's it's but, that's what that's what you do every time food has a hole in it. Um almonds and eagles uh run, good runners up here. Yeah, exactly. But that it's kind of a fun like thing to keep in mind because one of the ways that you can tell the difference between like black raspberries versus blackberries, particularly if they're like wild foraged, is that blackberries come away from the plant whole. So they don't have the hollow center because like black raspberries and blackberries on the outside, I they're really hard to differentiate between each other. But the blackberries aren't hollow in the center. You cannot put blackberries on your fingers without smooshing. So if you're wild foraging, the other thing to keep in mind is that like the rubus species in general tend to like hybridize like it's their fucking job. So it's kind of tricky to discern like species, subspecies, and even hybrids. So like even experienced foragers, it's like, you'll know this is a black raspberry, but who the fuck knows what it's been crossing with? Like they're slutty little plants. They're just gonna like hook up with whatever. Good for them. But there have actually been like a lot of really good for them. Oh, I know. We love a slutty berry. We're here for it. <laughs> so there have been like a lot of debates about whether scholars in antiquity were really talking about raspberries or blackberries, but the two of them have like really similar herbal actions. So I, honestly, to me, it's like not super important either way to figure it out 100%. But if you want to grow them at home, you're in luck because one raspberry bush can produce hundreds of berries every season, hundreds. It's a lot of berries, Good right? And there are two main types to choose from. So there's what they call the summer fruiting raspberries. Those are the most common. And they're, they're the ones that like will only fruit on canes in year two. 
and they bear one crop per season, but there are now also ever bearing quote unquote raspberries that can produce berries on new canes and they produce a fall crop and then can also produce another one the next summer. So if you want to like be a fucking like crazy raspberry eating fairy that just like lives in the woods and eats berries year round, plant both. Like plant a summer fruiting and an ever bearing raspberry and like literally the winter will be your downtime. And then you'll just have to eat the ones that you've preserved and frozen because like you'll have berries the rest of the year. Um, the other really good news guys, raspberries are self-fertile. They're, they're going to produce the best if they're pollinated by bees, but these aren't things that you have to get out there and like shake them to get them to drop pollen. Anyone who's like grown tomatoes in places without a lot of pollinators is familiar with having to shake the vines to make sure that they're pollinating, but they do need to be pruned. Like that's where the upkeep comes in, right? Because even though they're perennials, the fruit-bearing canes on most varieties can only live for two summers. So you got to get those shear those shears out, you know, you got to cut them back to keep things producing. But so you want to plant them, right? Find a place in your yard with like rich, well-drained soil and good air circulation, but not too much wind. And that's just a thing with like a lot of berries in general. Like the, you can't have them in like a fucking like you know, thoroughfare that's getting like these crazy through breezes, but like you do want air circulation because they grow in those like thickets. And so you want air getting in there so everything doesn't just rot. Even though, as a side note, raspberries are actually one of the few berries that you can grow that aren't going to be pains in the ass about like a variety of pests and diseases. Like they're actually pretty hardy, but you do still want air circulation. And then you're going to find a good plant at a nursery. Like you want to find like a one-year-old cane we're not talking about going from seed. We're just not going to do it. And then you're going to plant that early in the spring. Or if you live somewhere more temperate, you can even plant them in the late autumn. Um, and then before you plant them, soak the roots for a few hours, like one or two hours, and then dig a hole that's roomy enough for the roots to spread. But if you're planting like several plants, like against a fence, just like dig a trench. And then canes should be spaced about 18 inches apart with four feet between rows. And then once your canes are planted, cover them, tamp it down, and then cut the cane back to about nine inches tall. And that's going to encourage new growth. And I just have to tell you guys, at this point, you're going to be like, what the fuck? This just looks like a stick coming up out of the ground. Shannon, did I do this right? You did. Don't worry. Your little uh, what, stick what will, I will become say, fruit. What I will say with that is that that's often what rose bushes look like. Just kind of bringing it back around to their, their cousins. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, you're going to be like, what the fuck? It just looks like a stick, but it will be beautiful. I promise. You'll get fruit. You'll get your roses. It's just going to look like a very weird garden moment for a bit while you've got your planted stick. Um, also, you might want to like fashion some sort of support to hold up the canes, depending on your variety. Like, I love the way these look on a trellis, but I've also seen plenty of people with both like raspberries and blackberries just grow them along a fence. So, you know, choose your choose your own adventure here. Um, mulch them, mulch them, mulch them, mulch them. That's gonna be really important. You wanna keep the moisture in, but also mulching helps uh, suffocate the weeds. So I love dandelions as much as the next person, but you don't necessarily want them next to like the crop plants you're growing because they pull away nutrients. 
this isn't about them not looking good. I'm all for leaving dandelions in your fucking yard. Please do. It's actually really good for the soil. But when you're growing things to eat the fruit or the vegetables it produces, you really want them to get all the nutrients. So mulch is really useful there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. You can also like dig up the suckers that will grow out. Like that's something that happens also with tomatoes. You'll see these suckers and with raspberries and blackberries, sometimes they'll even like pop up away from the original plant, but it's still connected through the root system. So dig that up. You want to make sure you get rid of them um, away from the main plant. So again, they're not pulling those nutrients. But once you dig up the suckers, you can actually like replant them somewhere else in like fresh soil and have a new plant. But again, like you want to make sure that you're not letting things take away the nutrients because that's just going to decrease your yield. And anyone who grows fruit or vegetables, you want the yield. Every year with your black or with your blackberries or your raspberries, um, you're going to feed them with a couple of inches of compost. And that's going to like be the nutrients they need. You don't need to like babysit these with food. Just like make sure there's not too much stuff competing. Because remember, like raspberries and blackberries will just grow in the wild. These things are okay. This isn't like a tomato that's going to need babying. And like you're going to have to fucking like give your life to your tomatoes every summer. You don't have to do that with raspberries. So once you do harvest your actual fruit, don't wash them unless you're planning to eat them right away because they will become a mushy mess. But you can also like freeze them. Like raspberries freeze really well. You can make them into jellies. Um, you know, you can do all sorts of stuff to, pre uh, to preserve them. But if you want to eat them fresh, you got like five days. Raspberries don't keep for very long. Anyone who has brought like a carton of them home from the farmer's market or even the store and noticed like, day two they're done it's because they usually only last about five days within picking them so raspberries especially if you don't live somewhere where crops are grown a lot just like buy them frozen don't bother trying to buy them fresh if you live somewhere in the middle where they're not being grown nearby because most of the transport time has eaten up the amount of time that they'll be really fresh for so as for the leaves you're going to want to harvest the a uh, few like top leaves from each stem before the blossoms open, but don't strip the plant of all its leaves. Like be nice, still needs to photosynthesize. And you can use the leaves fresh or dry them to like keep them for a longer time. But on that note, let's talk about the medicinal uses, y'all. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. I'm not a doctor. Nick's not a doctor. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please don't use this to diagnose or treat anything. Always, always, always talk to your personal medical care professional, like whoever you meet with regularly before you start any herbal regimens. But raspberry leaf, guys, I'm obsessed. So it's an astringent. It's often recommended for digestive upset, like specifically for diarrhea, but it does have antispasmodic properties that can also promote like healthy peristalsis in cases of mild constipation. But that help with diarrhea and anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, you know, that's why it's like all for menstrual cramps. But before we get into that, um, those like astringency and anti-inflammatory properties are also why raspberry leaf is used for oral issues, things like ulcers and bleeding gums. You can make like a gargle with it if you have a sore throat too. So like it's good for it's good for a bit, but I really want to talk about the uses for menstrual cramps because like this is where it's at for support during your menstrual cycle. So again, it helps with digestive issues, 
anyone with a uterus knows that when those hormones are released to make your uterus contract, does the same thing to your intestines that are right there. So that's nice. But raspberry leaf has this really interesting sort of duality when it's working with your uterus because it's both a relaxant and a stimulant. But like, is there anything more contradictory in the world than a uterus? Probably not. It has these like womb strengthening effects that help it contract more smoothly, which helps reduce the cramping. And the astringency also helps like lessen heavy menstrual bleeding, which is clutch. I, I kid you not, your mileage may vary, but personally, I have found that I, I get really heavy cramps like the first couple of days of my menstrual cycle. A few cups of raspberry leaf tea helps me more than ibuprofen. Like I notoriously have had really terrible periods for most of my life. Raspberry leaf tea has been a game changer for me. Again, talk to your doctor before you do anything. But like, if you're someone that struggles with menstrual issues or pains, like I cannot recommend it enough that you like discuss this and see if it could be a good fit for you. Because it has like genuinely been like life-changing for me with how much it helps. Um, I also do have to point out though that raspberry leaf is one of the most commonly used herbs during pregnancy because of that like womb strengthening, but also because it's really high in like vitamins and minerals, which is also why it's good when you're menstruating because it helps replenish your body of all the stuff that you're use, uh, you're losing. But it's like really good at strengthening the uterus. Like they've done some studies and like pregnant people who were taking more like raspberry leaf tea throughout their pregnancy had like lower rates of like pre and post labor cramping. They also were less likely to need like uh, vacuum assistance in getting the baby out. Uh, pregnancy is wild. I don't know a lot about it, but the studies were really promising for using it with um, within pregnant people. There are contradictory opinions about whether or not it's safe for use during the first trimester. So again, like talk to your doctor, your midwife, whoever you're working with in your pregnancy. But I, again, I do think it's worth like discussing if this is something you're interested in adding to your, you know, pregnancy, like wellness plan. Uh, the leaf can be made into a tea, a tincture, or even like a gentle infusion. Like if you like a cold infusion, um, specifically if you're having like digestive issues, like red, uh, red raspberry leaf and chamomile can be made into cold infusions and drank, which is like super soothing to your gut. Um, now let's, uh, well, before magic, I do have to say there's a safety note, guys. Uh, some people say it's contraindicated for folks with anemia because it can interfere with the absorption of iron because it has a really high tannin content. It's also why people with anemia aren't supposed to be drinking a bunch of wine because tannins can fuck with your absorption of iron. Um, with that said, if you're someone who takes supplements that include iron that you need to like, you know, fully incorporate into your body, don't take it at the same time. But again, this is why you gotta talk to your doctor. There's all sorts of little things about your personal body that this could interact with. But Magic time. It's Venusian. It's associated with water. Shocking to approximately no one. Uh, uh, not surprisingly either, it's used a lot in healing and love magic. Um, one of the traditional uses is said to like use the leaves in your bath to bring luck in your marriage or keep your partner's eye from wandering. I always gag when I see the like wandering eye magical uses like, bleh. no, no. 
But you can also hang the brambles above doors and windows for protective magic. And some traditions suggest doing that once a death has occurred to keep the spirit from coming back into the home. So what I was thinking is it would be great, like, especially if you're moving into a new space, like a new apartment, a new house, if there's like some like tricky or malevolent energies that you're cleansing out, I think it makes a lot of sense to like do the cleansing and then like hang the brambles up as sort of like a one-two punch, right? Like get it out and then keep it out. I would be wary of like putting it up before a cleansing because to me, protective like boundaries like that can also keep stuff in, which is good if it's good stuff, but not if it's something you're trying to banish. So like order of operations magically matters. Um, of course, pregnant women feel free to like carry the leaves to help alleviate pains, the, uh, the pains of giving birth, but also again, a good reason to drink the tea, but lots of pregnant people use it in their magic as well. Um, so my sources today, the herbarium, the farmer's almanac, wingsinthenight.co.uk and Cunningham's encyclopedia of magical herbs. But um, of course, Cunningham's. Also, wingsinthenight.com.co.uk sounds really cool and fun. Yeah, I know. I was like, I was like, I'm excited to put this in there. But yeah, raspberries, y'all, raspberry leaf. I just like again, I'm not a doctor. Disclaimer, disclaimer. But for me, using red raspberry leaf has really like really changed the game for me because my periods put me out of commission for a long time and they don't anymore. So enjoy. Your mileage may vary, an, but an herbalism success story. Truly, truly, we love it. Well, you guys, I cannot believe that it is time for another Lunasa episode. I really feel like we were just covering this. It's probably still open in my drive folder somewhere because I'm not very good at computers. Uh, actually, Shannon knows this because I had to call her a bit before recording today because my cat turned my computer screen sideways and I was freaking out only a little, but. <laughs> Luckily it's a very easy command, but um, yeah, Faye is also, again, sabotaging the podcast at every turn. <laughs> I think she just wants to be recognized creatively. So for anyone out there to whom this might mean something, Faye wrote Q, the letter, you know, approximately 20 or 30 times. And the number eight, quite a few times as well. So, yeah. And you know, guys, those aren't right next to each other. So I think that means something to someone. Yeah. So, Q8, if you're out there, let us this know. This one's for you. This one's for you. <laughs> uh, but no, regardless of how I feel about the passing of time, it is, in fact, that time again which anyone who's been listening knows for this particular pass of the Wheel of the Year, we're digging into some of the historical roots of our favorite Sabbaths. And right at the top, I thought it would be good to take another look at our beloved Wheel of the Year for some context. So there's two categories of Sabbaths on the Wheel of the Year. So we have the quarter days, which are marked by the sun, and um, it's the solstices and the equinoxes. So we have, for those, Yule, Ostara, Mabon, and Litha. And those are the quarter days. And then the cross-quarter days, which are the halfway points between the solstices and the equinoxes, basically, are Beltane, Samhain, Lunasa, and Imbolc. 
So you might recognize those four as the fire festivals as well, but the real star of the show for the cross quarter days is the agricultural calendar. And the themes of those Sabbaths are very much tied to the land and fertility. And the way I think to look at it is, or the way I kind of look at it is these ones that are very celestial and like based on the sun are kind of for like the people in the ivory tower that have time to deal with shit like that. The cross quarter days are for the real people, the people growing the food, the people who are getting married and fucking and continuing the fertility of this thing we call planet earth. So just a, l- a little bit on the different there. So this is one of the cross quarter days. This is a holiday for the people. Okay. So before I move on though, one fun thing that I learned is that this idea of quarter days and cross quarter days from the Celtic calendar, which is very much like a real thing that they observed, did ultimately lead to quarters in a fiscal sense because the British picked it up and the quarter days was when you would do business. They divided the year into these quarters. And so on the quarter days, that's when you would hire new people. That's when you would fire people and kind of reassess where your business dealings are at. It's it's very much like business time, um, which I kind of like. So the, but I also feel like these Sabbaths kind of have this businessy feel, um, especially this yeah. one. It's 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 a harvest Sabbath. It's like it's you know I mean this is the one that's associated with state fairs, but it's still a business related thing. So um, yeah, and I was gonna say I think I know you've mentioned it here, but like a lot of nonprofits, it's it's a little bit before, but like our fiscal year restarts on July one, so it's like yeah, it's like that summary summary first quarter vibe yeah uh-huh it's first quarter vibes um yeah i was i literally that was the next thing i had in my notes and i was like it's something to ponder next time you're doing your taxes thinking about all those quarterly whatevers i don't know i don't have money bring so bring some I, magic to the irs <laughs> bring some magic to the irs uh, but it does seem uh, apropos of some of the general themes of the sabbath you know, business, quarters, back to school. But Lunasa is one of those Sabbaths, which might have been cobbled together Frankenstein style in some Victorian witch's basement. And I think that's fine because I think this time of year, these are kind of the general themes anyway. And there is this connection to Lou, which I'm going to be talking about, but there's actually not like a shit ton of evidence that there was like, a, a Celtic blue Sabbath. Yeah, I think but that's the, the thing we, story... we kind of talked. We've kind of talked about it before, where I feel like um, the wheel of the year. A lot of it was kind of cobbled together, but that doesn't make it like that doesn't take away the value of recognizing the turning of the year. So it's like we made these markers. Ancient people also made their own markers, just because these aren't like rooted necessarily in like one to one ancient traditions doesn't take away their value and magical power. No, and I actually think what's cool about this is that I'm going to be looking at sort of both traditions that might have gone into this Frankenstein monster. So, because it's not just plucked out of the air either. Like, there are, there 
there was this kind of festivity going on, uh, and it does have a connection to Lou. So it seems that there is ample evidence of the um, Enoch Taltion, I'm absolutely butchering that, which was a festival actually honoring Lou's foster mother, Taltiu, who died of exhaustion after clearing the fields of Ireland with her bare hands so that they could be better land for farming. So definitely a worthy accomplishment to celebrate. Very fitting imagery, very rich symbolism for a harvest holiday. So I could see why if you were trying to fill in this particular blank spot in the wheel of the year, that you would reach for that particular festivity for this sort of harvest holiday. But then there's also llamas. As, so a lot of times when you look at, like, if you just Google the Wheel of the Year, you'll see Lunasa slash Lamas. Um, and Lamas is also known as Lofmas. So take a moment. That's what was making me giggle. It's just Lofmas. Lofmas, because it's like Christmas, but with but it's loaf. But with But with loaves. I like to think of it as kitten loaves, although I'm sure it's bread. Right. Um, so, but this tradition really got into the amber waves of grain of it all. Loafness. So the idea there is that it's officially the first grains are in the field, which is what this Sabbath really is celebrating. The first grains are in the field. Let's make some really fresh bread and get blessed. And that part is open to interpretation. Like, what does, you know, getting blessed mean? Because also it's ultimately the festival that turned into state fairs um so it's it's all good fun um but actually if you were pious if you were a pious kelp you would actually get your first loaf of bread from the field blessed by the priest by the priestess but you know by the bard but you know the whoever's there um and basically this is a time to manifest a good harvest because the harvest is starting really this is the time when shit can go wrong because you're like oh well you know if the harvest is starting why is there so much focus on having a good harvest well here's where shit can go wrong for instance you bring in your harvest you got your big ass pile of barley right it rains a little bit guess what you're fucked now it's such a crucial time for everything to go right and it really is TCB time, but it is the traditional time to have a county fair. Shout out to the State Fair of Texas. For all of our UK peeps, this is also the time when you would like have your village cricket match out on the green or whatever it is you people do. And historically, though, yes, it's a bit of good fun. And I mean, it's the beginning of harvest season. So there's definitely abundance. There's this idea of abundance to have things like fair foods and baking competitions and, you know, <laughs> Great British Baking Show even style vibes. And actually, the Christians liked loafness. So they just kind of took it on board. And the blessed bread thing must have reminded them of communion. And they just, they kept it. But this time, this time around with the priests blessing, blessing the loaves, um, so everyone would bring in 
everyone kind of bringing in their breads though it really is giving like pie competition vibes like state fair pie competition vibe like everyone bringing I mean, in their loaf it straight up makes me want blueberry pie right like, well but, it, but you know yeah. it's like everyone everyone bringing in their loaf to get blessed like obviously you're gonna put a lot of work into your loaf of bread that's gonna get blessed so to me yeah, i'm like you want to get that handshake when you bring yeah. it in to be blessed yeah 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 <laughs> absolutely so it really is giving great british baking show for some reason but the idea of praying over bread as a beginning of harvest season ritual does have even more ancient roots than the ancient celts and yes i'm talking again about those ball worshiping canaanites again so we're talking about the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which could use a little PR because that is a decidedly not very sexy name for a holiday. The Again, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. That's no one's favorite holiday. That's, that is, that it's not. Um, but the really bonkers thing to me is that the, the main pieces of Lamas, Lunasa, and the Festival of Unleavened Bread, are basically the same. So we've got the first harvest in the field. Done. We're blessing the bread. Done. Um, we're praying for a bountiful harvest season. Done. And wine. But specifically four glasses of wine. Yeah, so I was like... So a bottle. So a bottle. Yeah. I'm like, I've never seen a glass of wine where four wouldn't be a bottle. Right. But the specifics are a little different. And there's a lot of superstitions that are involved in the sort of Phoenician festi <laughs> festival of the unleavened bread. Um, so the Phoenicians were really into sourdough, like many of us pandemic-stricken millennials in modern times. And as this celebration is all about grains and bread, this was the time of year to restart your starter. So for a whole week, no one is eating any kind of leavened bread. And everyone is eating unleavened bread, which is like matzah. So if anyone is Jewish, has Jewish friends, when we're talking about this unleavened bread, uh, we're, we're talking about giant matzahs. Okay, so just so you know what we're talking about. And the ancient version of Lofmas, the bread was this giant matzah cracker called a barley sheaf. And again, not a very sexy name, you know. But that also 100% feels like a technical challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make an ancient Mesopotamian barley sheaf. Yeah, there's, there's three lines of instructions. You have an hour and a half, go. Right, right, right. Um, but the first one of the year, or really of the week, because it, this is kind of just like a week-long thing, where you're redoing your sourdough starter, which I think it's funny that everyone, everyone at the same time was like, we got to throw out our sourdough starter and start over. So you bring it in, and it would get blessed by the priest, your, your barley sheaf, and then this would kick off 49 days of harvest season, which you can't get married, you can't cut your hair. It kind of has like a Passover vibe too, because you're supposed to be eating bitter herbs and being very serious and kind of meditative. Again, all of this in aid of the harvest going right, because you do not want to jinx the harvest. So one foot out of line and everything could go terribly wrong. 
which you know there's there's a bit of fear in that which i'm also like it feels right that lunasa is like so close to virgo season because i'm just like oh yeah this is where the tummy aches come in this is where the tummy aches come in but actually i did kind of want to talk about that as far as like the placement of lunasa on the wheel of the year because it's literally where the sun leo is about to meet the earth virgo and that feels like the sun and earth together feels very appropriate for this kind of early harvest holiday yeah for sure and i do think the people who made the zodiac whoever they were which a lot of i mean the mesopotamians had a zodiac it was different than the one we use but basically the idea of the sun and earth being together around this time really does feel appropriate and but what I will say, though, is when I'm talking about this uh, Festival of the Unleavened Bread, this would have happened around um, Iranian New Year, because we do have to remember the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, whatever you want to call them, they, they did kind of live in a desert that they made very good use of through inventing this really cool thing called the canal. But nonetheless, their growing season was a lot different than Europe's. But I see it as a direct correlation because, again, this is the the festival where the first grains are in the field, and it really mirrors those European celebrations as well, which is why, again, when I'm doing these segments, I'm like, I want to go back as far as I can. So, but I do, I do think the Festival of Unleavened Bread, though, is kind of like the prototype because I get the four glasses of wine. It's a celebration. It's like the one time in all of this that you get to celebrate. Because then you have to be super on top of shit for 49 more days. So it's like, drink your four glass, drink your bottle of wine, <laughs> drink your four glasses of wine. But it has to be four glasses. That is part of it. I just have to say. So not three glasses of wine, not five glasses of wine. Four. Four glasses of wine. I just love it because four is a very specific number oh yeah oh yeah so that kind of is is really all i had um you know the egyptians did have harvest festivities but i like the mesopotamian one more and so obviously because we're a bit strapped for time even we got to talk about Adonis now yeah so before we do that nick I think we should do some asks. If they, uh, oh, if they wanted to get in touch with us. incredible idea. How would they get in touch with us, Nick? Well, if I was trying to get in touch with us, thankfully I don't actually have to do that. I would just go to maybe Instagram at once and Friends pod, shoot us a message. Um, I also love to email people various things. So our email is onceandfriendspod at gmail.com conveniently enough if you really really wanted to get into it you could go to our patreon um, which is patreon slash wands and fronds pod very easy to remember thank you shannon for making it so easy for everyone to remember but really i think the easiest thing you could do is like comment subscribe yes I've even taken the work out of it for you. I have come up with a couple of really great templates for possible comments you could leave. I think one of them that really drives the point home is this podcast is good. 
Hmm. Short, simple, sweet, to the point. Or you could also say, thank you, Nick and Shannon, for making such a good podcast. If you really wanted to be brown noser. Wow. And we love a brown noser. Look, there's a lot of Virgo energy on this podcast. Oh, yeah. We appreciate sucking up. Big, big, big brown noser energy. (laughs) But yeah, like give us five stars, leave a review. And hey, if you're already listening, give us a download, you know, just for funsies. You actually, you never know when your Wi-Fi is going to go out and you're going to need to entertain yourself for like an hour to an hour and a half. Yeah. And we're here for you. All right. So. Before we get into Adonis, guys, up top, trigger warning for incest. I just have to get it out of the way. Uh, So we all know Adonis, the god of beauty, desire, notorious hottie. Can I just say up top, I think this is a great deity to be covering going into Leo season. I'm going to shut up now. No, 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 no. You're right, though. Like... The Leoist vibes of all Leos. My Leo stellium shines in the face of Adonis. Um, I I was talking to my partner Eric about it, and they were just like Adonis, Brad Pitt, and I was like, I love that journey for you, um, Brad Pitt, like young Brad Pitt. I see it. I see the vibe. But notorious, haughty, thoughty, sexiest dude, glowing god, son of Theus who was the king of Syria, and Murrah, who was the king's daughter. So it said Uh-oh. that, in, you know, whoopsie doodle. Um, so in some myths, they say that Aphrodite cursed Murrah because she was prettier than Aphrodite, which seems possible given what a haughty Adonis turned out to be that his mommy would have been pretty. But so Aphrodite cursed Murrah to lust after her own father. Ew. But then Murrah, using like the aid of a night nurse, like tricks her dad into having sex with her in complete and total darkness for nine nights. And that's when baby Adonis was conceived. Um, So when King Theus found out that he was being tricked into boning his daughter, uh, he was understandably upset. But he did try to have her killed, which is not the nicest. So Murrah pleads with the gods to let her live. And they're just like, oh, okay, fine. Shut up already. They transform her into the myrrh tree. And it's said that the scent of the myrrh tree are the tears of Murrah, which is like beautiful and tragic. But then like as a tree, she births Adonis. Don't ask too many questions. This is Greek mythology. We're not getting into the nitty gritty here. But Aphrodite sees baby Adonis and is like, oh, fuck. Holy shit. Look at that hot baby. She puts him in a box. She gives the box to Persephone and is like, yo, bitch, don't open this. But I need you to take care of this because uh, protect it. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. I'll be back. But of course, Aphrodite tells someone to not open a box. What do you think that person's going to do as soon as Aphrodite's gone? Open the fucking box. So of course, Persephone has been like appointed to raise and protect this baby. And she opens the box and she's like, oh my God, that's a hot baby. And proceeds to fall in love with him. (laughs) So as Adonis grows up, Persephone like refuses to send him back to Aphrodite. This is just some like, fucking goddess grooming but like 
we can't get too far into that. Um, so eventually Aphrodite and Persephone are in a cat fight over who we will now just go ahead and make a grown-up Adonis because I'm over the hot baby in the tree. Uh, enter Zeus stage right to settle this dispute. So he sets it up so that Adonis spends one third of the year with Persephone, one third with Aphrodite. And Zeus, because he can be nice to men, gives the last third to Adonis to choose to be with whoever he'd like. So, of course, Adonis decides to spend two thirds of the year with Aphrodite. Swoon. This fucking couple. They're beautiful. They're having their happy ending moment. They're like, gorgeous in love they have two babies but it's a greek myth so we all know that that happy ending does not last and there are a few different versions of adonis's death um including one feet our favorite artemis so all of them though have the same thing in common he is a skilled hunter he loves to spend time like getting sweaty shirtless with a bow and arrow hunting beasts like okay this we is all... so, like, he's such a Leo. Yes, isn't he? Like, oh my God, hi Adonis. Um, but yeah, so he ends up getting killed by a wild boar, uh, which, you know, nature bites back. But there are a few versions of like how this happens. So in one, it's just like fucking whoopsie daisy, total accident, freak of nature thing happens. He gets killed by a boar. There is a version where it's said that Artemis is jealous of what a good hunter Adonis is and sends the boar to kill him. I don't buy it though. The one that to me, and maybe it's because I'm an Artemis stan and I like cannot with people talking shit about her, but it also makes the most sense to me is that uh, in one version, Ares, who is like in love with Aphrodite, is jealous of Adonis and sends the boar to kill him. And for some reason... You know, to me, it just seems like toxic masculinity and coveting of Aphrodite is probably the strongest motivator to off Adonis. Yeah, well, I could see that. I mean, just like as an Aries, jealousy is an issue. Jealousy is, is a disease that we have. And it's not nice. Like, jealousy isn't cute when it's coming from a fiery person. Like, this is the type of jealousy that leads, like, the beast to lock Belle in a fucking tower. Like, this is, like, literally putting someone in a dragon-guarded, like, tower for the rest of their lives because you don't want anybody to fucking touch them. Like, said with love to all of my Aries. As... As my dog is the biggest fucking Aries. Willow is such an Aries. She cannot stand for anyone to get near me. She has to like get in between us. But anyway, so Adonis's story is like pretty short and sweet. He's just like notoriously gorgeous. So, you know, there's not actually a whole lot of stuff I've seen online about people working with him as like any sort of like patron deity. Um because he's also I, re not I really think more like jockey dudes need to get into witchcraft. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um magically, of course, like I've seen people calling on him for beauty magic, love magic. I think it's like 
a good one to call on if you're like in a marriage and you're two beautiful people like me and my partner and you want to be blessed but not have one of you end up being murdered by a boar like I feel like Aphrodite and Adonis are like polyamory goals right because like they have other lovers Adonis spends a third of the year with Persephone who's also fucking Hades like there's so much sexy sex happening (laughs) but like if you're polyamorous I'm like yeah maybe Adonis and Aphrodite are for you too but I've also seen some really cool recs and like spell work for trans mask folks to like call on Adonis which I also love Adonis is like a trans mask patron deity like how cool is that um of course like offerings to Adonis could be anything gold hunting related although i'd steer clear of boars i mean i'm honestly thinking a lot of really similar imagery that we see with artemis like golden arrows like that's sexy um i also personally would like maybe avoid myrrh that's his mom's like tears that's kind of shitty (laughs) um but yeah adonis was an interesting one there's just like not a whole lot that i found about working with him magically although yeah it's like big leo energy I love the idea of like making offerings to him maybe during Leo season. It's like, hey, beautiful God, shine your beautiful light on me, put on a gold robe, go like dance in the sunrise, thanking Adonis for being such a fucking hottie because I know all of you are. Um, So my sources today were like GreekMythology.com, GreekGodsAndGoddesses.net. I got on some Reddit. I did some Google, some Wikipedia so this was like kind of a general one because I love like Adonis is so interesting, but also like not to be mean. It's kind of like a shallow pool to like get resources from, though. There's not a whole lot. I mean, there was like a cult of Adonis, but it was mostly women making offerings to Adonis. So I'm like, did someone just have like a sexy Satan statue moment where it was like all of the women were like, OK, but like <laughs> I want to make offerings to this marble statue oh yeah Mm. and you know there were some queer boys in there that were just like oh yes it's like we all rocky in rocky horror picture show is an adonis figure a beautiful dumb baby like yeah we're here for it we respect we love we appreciate but also like i don't blame artemis i'm not here for that don't blame we're not gonna blame artemis this on this podcast no we would never. On Watson we Franz, you really think we're going to put this on Artemis? No, thank you. No. Anyway, no. but that's it. It's like Adonis is kind of short and sweet. Um, Not like what I imagine that gorgeous cock must be. Oh, my God. <laughs> on that very spicy commentary <laughs> from Shannon. Goodness. I'm sorry. I'm um, reading a court of, like, a court of thorns and roses. Uh, okay so why are you the third person i know reading that book because it's it's horny season yes you should should i read it yeah it's leo season get horny read it it's hot i I, I did buy that bridgerton prequel i think that's what that's kind of what counts as being horny for me well i have i'm like also like i i'm taking a break i just read sense and sensibility and pride and prejudice and now i'm like reading this series and then i'm gonna go back and do emma so it's like i'm also reading jane austen i'm a complex creature i have a lot of leo and virgo 
I have both horny fantasy romance and Jane Austen in me. I am a woman of duality. <laughs> it's fine. You contain multitudes. Exactly. As do you. Are... I think you should read the horny series too. No, I, honey. Yeah. I... Yeah. Okay. So I. So send us, send us your horny fantasy recs for Nick to get for vacation. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Truly, truly, truly do. Because I'm only bringing three books and I'm not sure if that's enough. Yeah, we need some horny recommendations for Nick's travel reading. Anyway. So, guys, I actually get to do good news this week. Can you believe it? Yay! Okay, so this week I drew Leo's sister sign. How appropriate. Aquarius. I'm holding it up for the camera for all the Patreon people to see. Ugh, the water bearer. The water bearer. And this week... For you guys, I drew the Empress. Oh, girl. Also, I love your Empress dragon card. Yeah. Oh, my God. Speaking of hot, fiery energy, an Empress dragon card. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you guys can see I've got my gold Leo season nails, speaking of. Anyway. So, you guys, you are in your element. All your hard work is paying off. I would say congratulations are in order like pop a bottle what i would also say is that sometimes being in charge in this way does mean that you have to take care of things um and i understand that aquarius's can be a bit cold and aloof and so this might even be a reminder to you guys that you 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 could uh, uh be nurturing something good um but to step into that and trust your intuition as well. Because again, you know, it's you, you guys can be a little aloof. So I would say this Empress energy, go with it, go with it. Because you guys, more than a lot of other Zodiacs, I think would be inclined to, to maybe play it safe, to play it conservatively. But you know, you're, you're being dealt a winning hand here. So, you know, like run free, like do it, like be, the best that you can be at whatever this thing is because you're winning honey you're winning i love this message for aquarians in leo season yeah like that feels good and i would say you know it's like with saturn in at home in aquarius and the sun at home in leo right now they're both in domicile which i was re reading up on um, just being an astrology nerd. But actually, this is such an incredible time for Saturnians because it's like really like you guys are like head to head with the sun right now. So I love that. Like as I've been getting more into whole like whole sign astrology too, it's like I've really been like starting to love having Saturn as my chart ruler. So I love, I love that too. Like being an Aquarius ascendant. Um, this just feels like such a good message for such alien people going into the summer, like sexy summer. Yeah. Lean into it. Lean into it. Yeah. You're being dealt a winning hand. Pop a bottle of champagne, y'all. Pop a, pop a bottle, y'all. Well, and I wish we could just do this all day and all night, but I do have a job womp, womp, womp. Womp. so what do we say to all of those 
gorgeous raspberry eating harvest celebrating unleavened bread bitches out there oh my god to all of you sexy gods goddesses all variations thereof blessed be bitches blessed be bitches goodbye bye now you can't you can't be beautiful smart and have an excellent beard that i mean okay fair 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 god knew i would be too powerful